Hello and welcome to the fourth podcast in the series on public inquiries. Uh, I'm Rob Francis, and today I'm joined for this podcast by Catherine Hale, a partner at Denton's. Welcome, Catherine. Can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm a regulatory and investigations lawyer, and as part of that, I head up Denton's UK regulatory and investigations group, and I also co-lead our UK, Ireland and Middle East compliance and investigations group. I have particular experience and really enjoy acting for individuals, um, including recently in a very high profile public inquiry. Great. Thanks, Catherine. So as a recap, in the first two podcasts, we covered the uh, public inquiry process and the third podcast covered the cost implications. In this fourth podcast, we're going to cover a number of separate issues which may have strategic importance for listeners. We're going to cover first dealing with individuals involved in the inquiry. Next, we'll consider challenging an inquiry. And the final point will be a brief discussion on the future of public inquiries. So turning to dealing with individuals, we've focused on core participants in previous podcasts. The first point to discuss today is a situation where an individual becomes involved in an inquiry who isn't a core participant. Before we get into that, Rob, can you just give us a quick recap on what it means to be a core participant in a public inquiry? So being a core participant gives certain rights, such as the right to see evidence and make submissions. It's the inquiry that determines whether individuals or organisations are granted core participant status. And the chair will consider the role the person's played in matters relating to the inquiry, the interest in those matters the person has, and the likelihood that that person might be criticised in any inquiry report. That said, a person can apply to become a core participant, and the chair will often decide based on a written application. Uh, there may, in some instances, be a preliminary hearing to consider any particularly contentious applications. However, those applications are, are usually made at the start of the inquiry process. In some uh, situations, there's nothing to stop uh, it occurring later in the process for a particular module or phase. Uh, the final point to make is that not everyone gets to be a core participant on large inquiries. That would make the whole process unworkable. So, Catherine, can you talk us through the situation where an individual that isn't a core participant uh, is involved because the inquiry wants to obtain evidence from him or her? What happens? So the first thing to say is that there's no bar to this happening. The inquiry isn't limited to just receiving evidence from core participants or from employees of core participants. Typically, the sort of situation where this might arise would be where the inquiry's got to a stage where they've reviewed a certain amount of evidence and identified from that evidence that it is important to get the evidence of particular individuals because of their particularly key role or knowledge of events. In that situation, the lawyers to the inquiry would write to the individual to ask them to provide a written statement under Rule 9 of the inquiry rules. This statement will be requested to be provided voluntarily, um, but if the individual refuses to provide it, then the chair of the inquiry would have the ability to compel them to provide um, evidence. Once a statement is taken, the witness could then be called to answer questions on the statement at hearings, and their statement may well be published on the inquiry website and also shared with core participants. So who takes the witness statement? Well, typically in litigation, um, a witness would be interviewed by the solicitors that act for that party. And the, they, those solicitors would produce the draft statement reflecting the witness's account of events. And once the witness confirms it's accurate, they then sign it. In statutory inquiries, um, the procedure for taking witness statements is set by the chair to the inquiry. 
That means that there's no automatic guarantee that the solicitors who act for the witness will take the statement. However, um, from my experience, it is often the case that that's how it will work, especially in large inquiries. An alternative possibility is that the inquiry legal team could interview the witness themselves, um, which is likely to be helpful for those witnesses who don't have lawyers instructed as the process of producing the statement and cross-referring to documents will be very alien to anyone who hasn't been through it before. Even if the inquiry team do actually produce the witness statement, um, the individual can have their lawyers present to interview and help them review the statement if they wish. Great. So what tips would you give to anyone acting for an individual witness? Uh, giving evidence to a public inquiry? Um, as ever when acting for individuals, I always um, would, would focus on the practicalities. I think it's a really key part of making the process of giving evidence less stressful. So that will be things like costs, you know, advising them and helping them work out whether they've got any sort of insurance or employer cover that might cover their legal advice fees. Um, thinking about things such as time off work to review materials and provide a statement. And also access to documents can sometimes be an issue, in particular if the individual was working somewhere else at the time that the inquiry is interested in. Timing is also really key. Um, it's not unusual for statements to be requested to be prepared in unrealistic timeframes. So it's always important to look at the number of questions being asked, think about upcoming holidays, volumes of materials, and whether the individual will need time to access them. And I'd always say, don't be afraid to approach the inquiry with a reasonable, well-justified request for more time to provide the statement in. I also think it's really important to cover and consider what the individual's actual approach is to the evidence that's being requested. So in some instances, you might have um, a client who really wants to spend a lot longer providing much more expansive answers to questions up front to preempt any possible follow-up. In other instances, you know, the individual may just, just want to answer the questions in fairly short order. Also, finally, on a personal level, it can be a very intimidating process providing um, witness evidence, um, especially if you've not done it before. So sometimes individuals may feel like their own actions are coming in for criticism, when often that's really not what's intended. I think it's helpful to provide lots of reassurance that they are just a witness and provide lots of explanations of the process and how you'll guide them through it so it doesn't seem as intimidating. And that way it can be more of a positive opportunity to be involved in a very important public interest process rather than something that's um, really intimidating and scary. Great, thank you. I think that that's a really helpful summary. So now let's move on to the next section of the podcast, which will focus on ways to challenge the inquiry. And it also gives me an opportunity to ask you some questions, Rob. So from your perspective, Rob, is challenging the inquiry something that parties can consider? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, as a preliminary point, I recognise that responding to an inquiry can be a stressful exercise for anyone. It's not meant to be an adversarial process, but if someone's organisation is at risk of criticism, they may feel differently. It's understandable that some people want to know what can be done to raise challenges, either during the course of the inquiry or about findings in the report. So what happens if a core participant wants to challenge what a panel member for the inquiry says? Well, the first point is that the Inquiries Act gives immunity from action for members of the inquiry panel or members of the inquiry legal team, providing their actions have been in good faith. Therefore, that's highly unlikely to be an option. The second point is that the same act also offers protection against defamation claims. So an example would be where the inquiry said something in error, but in good faith during the hearings or, or the report about an individual. 
Now, that individual wouldn't be able to bring a defamation claim. Uh, in theory, if the statement was motivated by malice, that protection wouldn't apply. Uh, however, it's difficult to see when that would occur in reality. Yeah, I can see that. What about challenging the findings of the inquiry? Is the position different? Well, the first point on this is that the there is a mechanism uh, in any statutory inquiry for a core participant to respond to criticism in the report before it's published. Uh, and we covered that in a previous podcast. However, this isn't so much about challenging the inquiry, but having an opportunity to put forward your position, which is also possible throughout the process, uh, such as in closing submissions. Uh, in terms of the inquiry itself, uh, statutory inquiries are public bodies set up under the Inquiries Act. Uh, so there is a route open through judicial review. And are judicial reviews common in this area? Well, while in, while in theory this gives a method of a challenging inquiry, it would be a difficult uh, process, and there are some significant limits. Uh, as with any judicial review, uh, this can't be used to challenge the substance of the inquiry's findings or its decision. Uh, instead, it would be about challenging the process the inquiry took to get to that decision. Before a judicial review would occur, the applicant would first need to get the court's permission, which can be challenging. And there's also some really tight timeframes on this. An application for judicial review of a decision by the minister who set up the inquiry or a member of the inquiry panel must be brought within 14 days of when the person became aware of that decision. Although the courts can extend that time limit in some circumstances. But it also, uh, this doesn't apply to decisions about the contents of the inquiry's report uh, or a decision from the inquiry um, that the applicant could not have known about until its publication. In those cases, uh, the person would still need to bring the application uh, promptly uh, and within three months. I definitely stress that judicial reviews can be challenging. There have not been many successful ones. Uh, it's important to note that even if the judicial review is successful, the result is likely to be that the inquiry would need to revisit the issue or decision and apply the correct procedure this time. So there's no guarantee of getting the result that the uh, person wanted. Thanks, Rob. That makes sense. So the final point before we draw to a close is just to briefly look to the future. What's your view, Rob, on the future for public inquiries? Well, I think public inquiries will be part of the legal landscape for years to come. Uh, and it's going to be a real issue for clients in the future. Uh, the number of inquiries has tripled in recent years, uh, and they're only getting bigger. Uh, what do you think it means for potential core participants? It's a good question. I mean, I think any organisation that may have been implicated in a public interest event needs to be really alive to the risk that they might be drawn into a public inquiry in the future. And obviously, if they then do get involved in one, in this age of electronic documents, Everybody needs to be really mindful to ensure that they've got document preservation policies in place and also to be careful that they're using technology to make the identification and review of relevant documents much more efficient and cost effective. And of course, I would say, obviously, they should get in touch with the right legal team early on. That's obviously key. I absolutely agree with that. Well, that was all we were looking to cover today. Uh, this podcast is one of a series, so please look online on the Denton's website for details of the others, and thank you for listening.